You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Tom Glenn, Tom is a former member of the National Security Agency, America's Signal Intelligence Agency. He served with NSA from 1961 to 1992. Uh, he is therefore a cryptologist, uh, a linguist, uh, has seven languages as I understand it, something I'm in awe of, and he worked undercover for quite a number of years for NSA. He is or has also been a musician, a government executive, a caregiver for the dying, a leadership coach, and perhaps, in you might say these days, first and foremost, a writer. He's got a bachelor's degree in music from uh, the University of California, and master's degrees in um, master's degree and doctorate uh, from the George Washington University. The doctorate was in public administration. Uh, for the better part of 13 years, he shuttled back and forth between Vietnam and the United States for NSA while operating undercover. And in 1975, he was actually evacuated under fire when Saigon fell and that long war came to an end. I think we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, as a writer, much of his, uh, he's a, primarily a fiction writer, much of his published fiction focuses on Vietnam, and he also is a book reviewer for the Washington Independent Review of Books, for which he specializes in books on Vietnam. And I'll just throw in also that his website is tomtellstales.org. That's tom-tells-tales.org. Tom Glenn, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you. So you were a longtime veteran of the National Security Agency. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to join NSA? Long story. Um, I was fascinated by languages from the time I was six years old on. And as a child, I taught myself French and Italian. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there were lots of Chinese around, lots of Chinese spoken words and signs. I loved the language. I wanted to learn it, but I knew that I couldn't teach it to myself. I had to get a teacher. Well, I went on to college, and I studied German, among other things, in college. After I graduated, I volunteered for the U.S. Army to go to the Army Language School for intensive study of Chinese. Instead, they sent me to a year-long course of intensive study in Vietnamese, a language I had never heard of. I didn't know what Vietnam was, because back in those days, we still called it French Indochina. 
So I went for my year of, of, of intensive training, and it was very intense. I graduated first in my class, immediately tried to go to Vietnam, but the Army instead sent me to Fort George Meade, Maryland, <clears throat> to the National Security Agency. Since I was in the Washington area, I enrolled in Georgetown University, that's where my father graduated, to study Chinese at night. I was going to get a master's in Chinese if it killed me. Two years later, when I left the Army, I had a wife and a child, so I applied to both NSA and CIA for a job. NSA offered me a higher grade, so I took that, and that's how I became an NSA employee. And so when did you first go to Vietnam? 1962. What was going on in Vietnam in 1962, and what was it like to arrive there as, a, as pretty much a newbie? Uh, first of all, I loved it. I spoke Vietnamese, French, and Chinese, the three languages of Vietnam. I was welcomed everywhere, particularly by the Chinese who were astonished that, uh, that a Westerner spoke their language in, in Vietnam of all places. Um, loved being there, loved learning the language. Uh, so immediately after that tour was over, I went back to the States, got my wife and my child. We came back for a two-year tour. Uh, my wife was a Vietnamese linguist who also spoke French, and my daughter grew up speaking French, Vietnamese, and English, but she only spoke it with the people she was supposed to speak it with. When we spoke to her in something other than English, she wouldn't answer us. And that woman today doesn't remember any of that. <laughs> Good heavens. Yeah. So now you were there with the National Security Agency, uh, yeah. whose purpose is to intercept signals of intelligence interest to uh, United States military or to the United States government. Um, to the extent you're able to tell us about this, what sorts of signals uh, was the NSA uh, able to collect against the uh, the enemy forces and and uh, the communists in the Vietnam conflict? Almost all the signals that the Vietnamese communists used were HF manual Morse and low VHF voice. Toward the end of the war, they introduced other more sophisticated uh, communications, but they always depended on the basics. I should mention, by the way, that they were extremely disciplined and very careful communicators. They never gave away anything. But we were stuck with HF manual Morse and VHF voice, which we exploited very effectively. Um, we were not able to read the ciphers after 1964 for the most part, so it was all observing those communications and what they did. So what people call traffic analysis? Yes, indeed. And, and Do really you want to explain a little bit what traffic analysis sure. is, just briefly? Traffic analysis is looking at the communications externals, uh, identifying radio networks, who's talking to who, how often do they talk, not knowing what they say, of course, because that means reading the ciphers, which we were not able to do at that point. Uh, and the structure of the radio communications is nearly always a reflection of the structure of the organization. If you can then locate those radio stations, you can largely locate the units they serve. Um, so you were uh, quite productive with uh, Vietnamese communist communications that were in the clear, and then with the traffic analysis. What sorts of what sorts of sort of intelligence problems? What sorts of things qualitatively are you able to learn then? Uh, what sort of some of the successes maybe that you had uh, from a SIGINT point of view uh, during your early years in Vietnam? The thing I'm proudest of is that we, from 1964 to 1975 
foretold every single major Vietnamese communist offensive that was launched in South Vietnam. We did it through watching primarily the externals of those communications. We knew them very well. We had been studying them, listening to them, watching them for years. Most of us had lived in Vietnam at one time or another. We knew a great deal about it. We watched for things like watch nets, where all of a sudden a military headquarters would start communicating 24 hours a day, in silence mostly, and they'd have hourly checks and all the stations would have to respond. We would see that headquarters detach a part of itself as a forward headquarters and move away. We were able to follow the locations of the stations and therefore the units as they served. We saw all kinds of communications procedures that told us something big was coming. We located, of course, the stations, and D-Day messages would begin to appear in tactical ciphers, little low-level ciphers that we could, could easily read, that were used on the run. All of that told us that, that, a, that an attack was coming, and we were so successful at it, as I say, we, we called almost every, well, every major offensive during, during that period. You, you mentioned D-Day uh, messages would appear. What, what do you mean by that? There would be a reference in a text. It would be in Vietnamese, uh, Ngai An, which translates to D-Day, which told us that something big was coming, and it was a communist habit to use that terminology when attack preparations were underway. So basically, then, if I understand you, just by uh, watching these Vietnamese communist signals day in and day out and learning everything about it that was normal, you were able to detect the abnormal and to draw inferences about that. Uh, is that basically correct? Yeah. But it doesn't address an element that I think is very important. What's, and that what's is, that? Um, I think the most important element in all of this ability to foretell what was going to happen next was the sixth sense of the analyst. Over the 14 years I worked the problem, we had maybe half a dozen people, men and women, who had this unusual ability to watch the communications and know without being able to tell you why that an attack was coming. I was one of those people, and I can't to this day tell you how I did it, but when I got that special tingle in my skin, I knew it was coming. And then we'd start scrubbing, looking for all the indicators to see if we couldn't find the, the Nguyen message, the look for the watch communications, and we found them. I think that's really interesting because we think about signals intelligence as being this very technical thing, right? It's all about ultimately physics and electronics and, that, and you know, high-level mathematics. But we, what you're describing is it's all of that plus a very human sort of process that some people maybe can do well and some people maybe can't do well, and even if they have the same technical skills. That's true. The only other thing like it that I know about is recovery of a cipher, which as far as I can tell is entirely intuitive. I do it myself, I know how it's done, but I can't explain it. All I can tell you is that I'll look at a particular group of letters reappearing in messages and all of a sudden one day I know what it means. How do I do it? I can't tell you. Can you give us some uh, sense of some of the language difficulties involved in this? For the communications where you were able, that maybe were in the clear or where you were able to, to break into the ciphers, this, language is always a difficult thing. Yes. We did read some of the 
Up until 1964, we, we read uh, some medium-grade ciphers. After that, it was low-level ciphers, but there were lots of them. So we had plenty of language work. Plus, we had the Liberation News Agency, which was a um, it was both a voice and a manual Morse net that was putting out propaganda 24 hours, um, many hours a day. It wasn't 24 hours a day. So this was a North Vietnamese outlet? Yes. Okay. Yes. We had to face every kind of language you can imagine from formal documents... Uh, to propaganda with all of their exaggerated use of um, of moderators and adjectives and adverbs, to misuse of French, <laughs> to borrowings from Chinese, which happens frequently in Vietnamese. And the thing that fascinated me the most, most was the language used by uneducated, simile illiterate peasant soldiers who spoke a dialect, and they would spell the words as they pronounced them, which was not correct spelling. And we had to say, how did they say? I would sit there and think, when I was down in Sadek, how did they pronounce that? They pronounced it this way. That's how he's, that's why it is spelled that way. He's pronouncing it as if he were in Sadek. That's the kind of language problem we faced. I can give you two examples, because two of my favorite stories. One day, a junior linguist was struggling with through an intercept that stressed the need of the communists for more of something they called bastos, B-A-S-T-O-S. It turns out that's the name of a suit in a Spanish card game, but clearly that isn't what the communists were talking about. The young man brought the message to me, and I laughed, because I knew what bastos were. They were Vietnamese cigarettes manufactured in South Vietnam. I had even smoked them. So I knew what they were. Another time, I was working on a message that was excoriating somebody called Chung Zetai. Central Reference had no idea who that was. I didn't know who it was. I knew from the spelling that all three elements of the name were transliterations of Chinese. And this is why my study of Chinese was so important. I was able to trace those back to the Chinese characters. Then I looked them up in Mandarin and found out that that name was pronounced Jiang Yeshir. Never heard of him. So then I started poking around in Chinese dialects to see if I could find anything that was remotely familiar, and in Cantonese, I found it, Chiang Kai-shek. No wonder the communists didn't like him. Good grief. <laughs> it sort of makes you wonder, at least makes me wonder as an outsider, uh, you know, how many... How many errors get made just, uh, you know, that, that go all the way straight through the process and are never detected as a result of language problems? Do you feel that you were able to probably scrub most of these out, or were there, were there, were there mistakes that propagated through the system just because of just linguistic issues? I have good faith that we were so familiar with the target that we never once misled anybody on the basis of misreading the language. I can remember a situation, their use of French was terrible. And if you know French, you know that sometimes you put a negative in a statement of fact. It doesn't mean it's not true, but that's just French grammar. Well, these guys didn't understand all that. They put a double negative in, so they said that something was not true when they meant it was true. But we knew how they used French. We knew they made that kind of mistake. So we figured out what they were really saying. And I think we did a good job of that. What was Operation MacArthur? I understand you were actually uh, out in the field, I, I believe, with uh, uh, tactical army units, though perhaps it was Marines. Uh, I heard you speak about this at a conference. 
Uh, it was not Marines. It was U.S. Army. And I was already in the field. I was, uh, in the fall of 1967, I was working at a remote SIGINT site in uh, Pleiku province. And we detected a large buildup of Vietnamese communist forces along the Laotian border south of us in Kantum province. We warned the U.S. 4th Infantry Division commander that a division-sized element or larger was approaching the town of Dok Tho in Kantum province. That guy, who was not a great believer in SIGINT, um, decided he would send out a battalion just to check it out and see if anything was really there. The battalion got mauled, or virtually destroyed. And the story of that battle is told in detail by Myra McPherson in her 1984 book, Long Time Passing. Of course, the communists added more forces, we added more forces, and it turned out to be one of the bloodiest battles of the whole Vietnam War. 376 U.S. killed, 1,000 to 1,400 North Vietnamese killed. And what was so tragic about it was that at the end of the battle, not much territory had changed hands. What was the General Directorate of Rear Services? This is Uh, something else I heard you speak about at a recent uh, uh, cryptologic history symposium. In Vietnamese, that's Dong Kuk Hau Gan. It means General Directorate of Rear Services, and that was the Vietnamese Communist Command, which along with its subordinate union, the 559th Transportation Group, was responsible for the infiltration of men and materiel from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. It operated throughout the war. Its principal communications were HF manual moors for long-haul communications, but the way stations along the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the groups who were traveling down that trail were using low VHF voice. The communists thought we couldn't intercept those communications because they were line of sight transmissions. But we had airborne assets and we did collect them all through the war. They were using a low grade cipher because it had to be uh, easily used on the road. Of course, we broke the cipher and we read it, and the result of that was that throughout the war, we had a unique handle on North Vietnamese infiltration of men and materiel into South Vietnam. That turned out to be one of our indicators because we found out that before a major offensive, infiltration peaked. So we pretty much had a good understanding then, if I understand what you're saying, of what was coming south on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Absolutely. Very good understanding. We even knew when they first introduced trucks on the trail. We knew when they were sending couriers so we could try to snatch them, and so on and so on. It went on and on. You mentioned earlier, and you've just alluded to it, that you had a pretty good capability through signals intelligence to predict um, impending offensives. How about the Tet Offensive, uh, which was launched in late January of 1968? Was, at least at one level, a a big surprise for the American forces? Did you SIGINTERS see this coming? or What was the Tet story from your perspective? Yeah, we foresaw it long before it happened. It's probably easiest for me to explain it from my own point of view, from my experience. In 1967, during the summer and the fall, I was in the Highlands uh, watching what was going on. And in October, November, all over the area I was watching, which is the northern half of South Vietnam, all the indicators popped up. So we knew an attack was coming. In December, I moved south. I went to work with a unit at Bien Hoa. 
and started covering the southern half of the country, and lo and behold, there they were again, sprouting all over the country, the indicators of forthcoming attack. As they showed up, the field units and NSA reported their appearance, saying an attack is coming, and finally NSA put out an emergency wrap-up report predicting a countrywide offensive. The sad part of this story, and it's one of the things that still makes me sad, is something I call the Cassandra effect. Even though every major headquarters was warned that the attack was coming, the U.S. was taken by surprise because the commanders simply didn't believe us. That was a problem I faced over and over in Vietnam. Why do you think they didn't believe you? I mean, you had fairly objective facts behind you. I, let me explain it this way. Maybe this will make it clear. I remember one general in the Highlands saying to me, looking up at the unit I was working with on the side of a hill and saying, you want me to believe that that clutch of guys up there with all those crazy wires sticking out of the mountain is going to be able to tell me what the communists are going to do next? I don't blooming believe it. And he didn't say blooming. That was the problem. I understand that's not a problem anymore, that the military commanders and U.S. Uh, officials now understand the value and specificity of SIGINT, but back in those days they didn't. We now know that the Tet Offensive was a political disaster for the United States, but on the other hand it was a military disaster for the Viet Cong who, who launched it. Um, and we now know that the Viet Cong were, were in pretty bad shape uh, and really never recovered uh, after the Tet Offensive and, and the mauling they got from us. Uh, were, you, were you able to get any sense from SIGINT of, after the offensive of the condition of the Viet Cong, of, of sort of what their health was after, uh, after that uh, offensive? Sure. We saw that they'd been badly mauled. Their losses were serious. But we also knew from their own communications that they knew they were going to take serious losses, and they were prepared for that and accepted that without question. So they were going all in. This was, for them, a big war-winning gamble. It was, and they were going to sacrifice everything they had to to make the point. And frankly, they made their point because they shocked the United States into changing its view of what was going on in Vietnam. That was the whole reason for doing it. I think they knew from the beginning that they were not going to be successful in taking territory, and and, and of course they knew that their losses would be tremendous, and they were. So we watched the communications. Some disappeared entirely. Some units just went away. But most of them pulled back, reshaped the way they were operating, and continued to operate, and the attacks by main force units went on, and even in the next year there was another offensive. 1968. The year of the Tet Offensive is really a watershed year in the American telling of the war. Uh, you know, it, the way Americans think about the war, there's basically before Tet and after Tet, uh, and actually not real long after Tet, uh, General William Westmoreland, the American commander there, was replaced by General Creighton Abrams. From your perspective, how did the war change, you know, in the second half of 1968 and then sort of in the, the post-Tet uh, period? My sense, and this is from being there on the ground, not from Signal's intelligence, is that Westmoreland and a good many of the Army generals misunderstood the war. They didn't understand that it was more political and economic than it was military, on the one hand, 
And Westmoreland emphasized and commanded that his subordinate generals execute search and destroy operations. He saw it as a war of attrition. When we had killed enough of the main force unit participants on the other side, the enemy would sue for peace because they couldn't continue to operate. He misunderstood a couple of things. First was the commitment of the North Vietnamese as a nation to give everything it took to win that war. They were committed to die if, it, if, if that's what it took. That was a commitment the U.S. never made. Secondly, as I have mentioned elsewhere, Westmoreland and his people insisted upon counting, doing body counts, which were exaggerated, and then attriting main force units, not guerrillas, not local force units, so that it always looked like the main force units were on the, the, the edge of, of declining, which, which, of course, they were not. He never understood the political business. He didn't see that the whole purpose of the Communist Party was to keep its military so that U.S. and South Vietnamese forces were distracted so the party could do its work with the people, establishing a shadow government, recruiting more soldiers for the war. Westy didn't see that it was his job to root out the Communist Party because they weren't military, and he was a military man. And he didn't see that the economic and political side of the war was so important. For example, he didn't understand that the corruption of the South Vietnamese government was an important issue, and he didn't see that he should be supporting the South Vietnamese forces to a far greater degree than he was. I think you were involved at one point, you were talking about sort of the, the, the body counts and trying to assess the strength of the, of the communist forces. You were involved in one point in a special national intelligence estimate dealing with some of those, directly with some of those issues that subsequently became famous. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. That was in the summer of 1967. I had been in Vietnam earlier. I came back to the U.S. to be the NSA representative to the SNE, the the uh, Special National Intelligence Estimate. And I sat across the table from the MACV people, Westmoreland's people. They were under orders to see to it that the SNE never allowed the total figure of Vietnamese communist military forces to go above 300,000. They arrived at that figure by omitting guerrilla forces and local forces from the count, and they counted only main force units they depended on body count, which they always attributed against main force units and never anything else. I, on the other side of the table, and Sam Adams from CIA, argued vehemently that those forces were very important in combat and represented a, a, a force that we had to deal with. Well, the Snee dragged on, arguing back and forth through the end of the summer. I finally left. I had to go back to Vietnam, and I went back to the Highlands, as I told you before. Later, I found out that Westmoreland's figure of 300,000 had held the day. We found out the next year, when the Tet Offensive came, when we took that 300,000 figure and we attributed it based on the body count of MACV during the Tet Offensive, that the main force units would have been so reduced in strength that they couldn't go on fighting but somehow they did. So the figure was wrong. 
After 1968, did you feel like there was a little more sanity that prevailed under Creighton Abrams, or was it really sort of more of the same? I'm sure you weren't hanging out with General Abrams on a daily basis, no, but no, no. Uh, you, you, were, you were picking up the zeitgeist and you were seeing how intelligence was being received, presumably. I'll tell you the way I saw it. Um, I didn't have with the Marine generals and the Marine commanders the same problem I had with the Army guys. The Marines understood that to win the war, they had to work with the people. And they operated that way as a military force. Under Westmoreland, the Army did not. When Creighton Abrams came in, he understood, just as the Marines understood, what, would be, what it would take to win the war. But it was too late. By the time he got things turned around so that things were moving in the proper direction, uh, the country was all but lost. Now, uh, President Nixon at some point uh, started a program of what he called Vietnamization, which was to progressively turn more and more of the responsibility for the war over to our South Vietnamese allies and start pulling American troops out. And in 1973, finally, the United States military essentially completed their pullout from Vietnam, uh, leaving the South Vietnamese behind to carry on the struggle. Did you and your NSA colleagues stay in South Vietnam at that time? The military part of the SIGINT effort did not. It was withdrawn. But we stayed. And we tried to work with the South Vietnamese signals intelligence operations to try to help them to become effective. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, Mark, working in those days in Saigon was like Alice in Wonderland in the world of the looking glass because reality was being denied. I talked before about the Cassandra effect, uh, the, the reporting SIGINT facts to commanders and not being believed, it got worse. Um, Ambassador Graham Martin was absolutely persuaded that the, South Vietnam, that the Vietnamese communists would never attack Saigon because it was such an ungentlemanly thing to do. And after all, they had signed the peace accords. So I sat in Saigon watching the SIGINT evidence build up day after day after day that the North Vietnamese were consistently violating the accords and the U.S. did nothing. In the beginning of, no, in the fall of 1974, the Congress cut off all aid to the South Vietnamese. It was as if they were signing the death warrant. For Through all of that, Ambassador Martin could, continued to believe that Saigon would never fall that the communists wanted to form a coalition government with the popular forces in the South, where I was intercepting and reporting to him almost daily plenty of evidence to the contrary, but he didn't believe it. Not long before the city fell, Saigon fell, I struggled through the mobs from the airport where my office was to get to the embassy to talk to him, and I pleaded with him, pleaded with him, to evacuate the Americans while they while he still could. I knew that the communists were less than 10 kilometers away and they were awaiting the order to attack. He put his arm around me and walked me to the door and said, young man, as you get older, you'll understand these things better. I was frantic. I went to the office of the chief of station uh, CIA chief of station, Tom Polgar, and I said, Tom, we got to get out of here. we got to do it. And he laughed, and he said, let me show you the cable the, the ambassador just sent. And he did. 
Martin told Washington and Sinkpack, Commander-in-Chief in the Pacific, that all that significant evidence of a forthcoming attack was due to Vietnamese communist communications deception. It was not true. So when the city was attacked three days later, he was very surprised. How did you yourself get out of the city? Because obviously you made it uh, when the final uh, offensive came in the, and Saigon fell in April of 75. Well, first of all, I had throughout the month been doing everything I could to get my people out. Uh, the ambassador wouldn't let me send them out. He, evacuation was not to take place. So I cheated, I stole, I lied. I sent them on home leave early. I sent them out TDY of, on temporary duty on, on business. Business travel, basically. Business travel. I sent some of them on vacation. One guy on the 27th, if I remember right, of April, I just simply took and put on an airplane and said, go. It was the last pan I employed out of Saigon. I asked two of my communicators to stay with me because I knew I had to stay through the, the attack on the city, and two of them volunteered to stay with me. When the attack started, when I knew that the communists were already into the streets of Saigon, I called the embassy and said, we need to be evacuated. And they said, we can't do anything about that. You're too far away, and we can't get to you, and sorry about that. And, and I won't tell you what my response was. Fortunately, it turned out the guy who was on the ground running the operation of the evacuation was somebody I'd worked with over the years in the war. His name was Al Gray. He was at that point a Marine colonel. He was later the commandant of the, of the Marine Corps. Um, I was sleeping in my office. My two communicators were exchanging 12-hour shifts, keeping the communications going. I had a 38 under my pillow and the doorbell rang. Went to the door, looked out through the peephole, and I saw this guy in a wild Hawaiian shirt with more colors in it than the eye can stand, shorts and flip-flops, and he gave me a round finger wave. And at first I couldn't figure out who it was. And then I thought, oh my God, it's Al Gray. I opened the door, he came in, we talked. Thanks to him, first I, after the, the troops were in the city, I was able to get my two communicators on a helicopter headed for the Seventh Fleet that was just out of sight of land in the South China Sea. And I wanted to wait till I got word that they were safely aboard the ship before I flew out, but Al wasn't going to have that. Using language I can't repeat, he made it very clear I was to get on that chopper and go. So I did. We took boats and fuselage as we were airborne, but we escaped. We were not killed. We made it. And to this day, I owe my life to General Al Gray, one of the men I most respect in life. And incidentally, I ran into General Gray at a symposium in October, and I found out that a biography about him is being written. I was interviewed for that biography. It'll come out in 2012. The name of it is Al Gray Marine, The Early Years, and the author is Scott Leidig. I saw General Gray, as I say, last October. Uh, we remembered that day when he slapped me, I won't tell you where, and told me to get aboard the helicopter. We laughed, and we cried, too, because we 
we remembered all the Vietnamese who didn't escape. Well, on that somber note, I want to thank you, Tom, for uh, for everything you've done for the country, and, and thank you also for sharing your story here at the International Spy Museum. We've been talking with Tom Glenn, a veteran of the National Security Agency, about his experiences in Vietnam. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.